0: This Dharma Talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening.
1: My topic today is detachment, (laughs) but that's such a huge topic that I changed the title to some thoughts on detachment. (laughs) I guess I'll start out by asking you guys what... uh, Guys and gals, I'm not supposed to say that you guys. Right. <laughs> um, start out by asking you all what you think of uh, what 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 does detachment mean? What does detachment mean to you? use this is an excuse to get a drink of tea. Anybody? Hey, evan I think sometimes it can like oh, help you try to imagine non-identification. like try so- to imagine what?
0: Like non-identification. So huh. for example, if I'm suffering, and I can kind of interpret it as just this very tiny piece of the suffering of all things, these, uh, then we can be kind of like.
1: Uh, so it's holding on to your identity or your identification with suffering? With yeah, suffering. maybe
0: detachment is like relaxing our identification self
1: so, With our with self? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good one. That's a good one. Anyone else have a slightly different way of saying things? I don't know who raised their hand first, but you're in the first row, so I'll go with you. (laughs) I think uh, freedom from reliance on things to make you Uh happy. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. And uh, Bob? No. No, Jack. I was just going to say perhaps equanimity in the face of whatever's coming up. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Or somewhat negative or somewhat positive. Yeah. For stable mind or self. Having a stable, having a stable mind and, and sort of sort of seeing things the way they really are. Like, yeah, yeah. Those are all good good answers, and all of them are true. Um, I guess I got a little bit more extreme in my definition of it. <laughs> I, I said that it was the ability to step out of our small self-centered mind. Of encompasses all of those things, I think, and also makes realize what a big topic it is because isn't the ability to step out of our small self centered mind really pretty much the entirety of our practice? Um, you know, that's at least to me, it always seemed like the very biggest thing. um, So, in a way, I could have called my oh, Sherry, what? So, it sounds like. You're saying detachment is like a
0: positive attribute, but I always thought detachment is kind of negative. You ever talk to people that seem detached? Oh, okay,
1: and yeah, you're absolutely and right. That's what the dictionary is like yeah. the opposite of. Right, I'm not concerned with things. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's probably the de- the dictionary definition of it. Okay. But uh, in Buddhism, um, you know, I think it in the spiritual realm. I think it means something different, or at least that's my
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's my thesis for the day. Um, yeah, but I'm glad you brought that up. I meant to clarify before we started that I want to not talking about detachment in the worldly sense or the psychological sense, you know, detachment and detachment theory and all that it's, it's different. Um, so um, to be the ability to step out of a small self-centered mind, in a way, to transcend our karma, basically. Our our self-centered mind is karma. And uh, of course, we also call detachment letting go. Um, So, um, of course, detachment is a duality with attachment. So, um, attachment, detachment. And so, in, in Buddhism, attachment is clinging what? To what we want, it's not just. I don't think it's just clinging to what we want. It's clinging to what we want and what we don't want. It's just clinging to our clinging to ourself basically, and our desires. And our desires may be for craving for things we don't that we think we need, and uh, as well as uh, craving to not have things that we don't like around. So, um, and we hold. We call that holding holding tight, holding tight as opposed to letting go. Uh, so it's a, a stickiness attachment, like a sticky a sticky mind, like a Velcro mind, which we all have. We, we all have Velcro minds that like to hold on to things, and um, it can be a real struggle, to, a, a lifelong struggle. And most of the time, you know, we're, we're never completely successful, I don't think, at least speaking for myself, I'm far from successful, but... Um, um, so that unpleasant stickiness, and, and it causes oh, a, a new word I learned, per- perseveration, perseveration, which means, I looked it up. Anybody know what perseveration means? God on a bone. What? Dawn on a bone. <laughs> okay, a <dawn> on a <laughs> bone. <dawn. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> Rich, you had your hand up too. Oh, I was just thinking about... Uh, Suffered from anxiety on and off all my life. And it's uh, that sort of recurring thinking. That's what a therapist would describe, most describe to me as like stinking thinking, where you're just like stuck on something. Yeah. Where you just keep going back and o- over the same thing over and over and over again. And uh, the sort of intrusive, repetitive thought that just won't stop. Yeah which I think in this context might mean the idea of self in some ways. Yeah. Like that mm-hmm. must keep coming back to yep. that. Yeah. I know that anxiety you're talking about. Yeah. Um, well, the dictionary says pretty much that, but it says prolonging an action or a thought long after the stimulus that prompted it has ceased. So I kind of like that idea too. That mm-hmm. Long after the mm-hmm. many years sometimes. Right. Hold on to this stuff for a long, long time. So, attachments um, can range from just simple preferences, maybe food preferences, things like that, to judgments, to our desires and our cravings, and to our identity, uh, where we we hold on to the identity that we've created for ourselves, uh, and go as far as fanaticism, uh, so just, just for fun, what are some things that you hold on to? What are some things, well, or at least that you'd like to, what are ideals of things that we hold on to? Anybody? Yeah.
0: My difference from my family. The what? My differences from my family. The
1: differences from your family. Yeah. You mean like the
0: conflicts and that kind I of thing? To
1: hold on to it. Oh, like your sort of a pride of your differences, but yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. How you stand out. Anyone else want to confess <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or you know, or you could talk about uh attachments other people have, maybe not. <laughs> oh, now the hands come up. <laughs> okay, Jenny.
0: I I would say uh, for me, one is just sort of the stories that I tell about myself. So just for example, I have a story that, you know, I don't, I don't know enough, you know, I'm, I'm never enough in terms of what I know, for example. So I, I need to separate, I
1: think. Uh-huh. Okay. I I totally identify with that too. <laughs> and Devin?
0: Maybe a sense of unworthiness or disconnection.
1: Yeah. Holding on to your own unworthiness or your own suffering. yeah That's a good one. Somebody had their hand over here. Yes. Uh, possessions, money. Oh yeah, good. <laughs> Money, fame, you know, all those all those things. Okay, well, I think that's a that's a good list. And uh, you know, just about anything we can think, we can hang on to, right? <laughs> Basically any kind of thoughts we can have. Um and you know this this attachment and detachment um thinking of it in a spiritual way is not just uh, a Buddhist thing. I mean, I think there's um, um, plenty of spiritual people that talk about attachment, attachment. Even uh, a Toltec person, um, what is that guy's name, Ruiz, is his last name? He's the son of the guy that wrote the Four Agreements, if you're familiar with that. So uh, his son wrote a book just recently called The Five Levels of Attachment. And when I looked at those attachments, he actually talks about an authentic self as being the you know the highest level and then going down to uh, preferences and identity and uh, fanaticism brings up fanaticism. so it's very very sounds very similar. I haven't read the book, but it sounds very similar to to our our um, use of those words um. So we have to start with attachment in order to develop detachment, and the reason I say that is, um, I think a, a lot of people, and myself included, uh, Zen people, sometimes uh, use the word detached to mean um, things they really don't care that much about. You know, oh, I'm detached. I, I don't hang around too much with. That's something I used to say back in my early days. I don't hang around with too much of my people in my sangha because I'm detached. <laughs> you know, but really I'm sort of an introvert and it was very difficult to hang around with members of my saga, so it was easier to just be detached. And that's not a uh, mis- misuse of the word. Um you know, so it's not a synonym for indifference or carelessness or just for passivity. It's and also we we uh, I think we also tend to use detachment as a way to avoid things we just don't really want to think about too much, like our issues with power, our issues with money. Uh, so you know, I, I just don't think about that. I'm kind of detached from all that. But really, I mean, that kind of detachment is uh, going to hit you in the face someday, because these, these issues can rise up, um, as well as our relationships with other people, staying away from people we don't like. You know, um, it doesn't pay off too well. Um, Dogen said, uh, "To give is non-attachment," and I can imagine that this is a pretty mysterious-sounding thing, especially to people outside our practice or outside the spiritual world, uh, because you know, like Cherry said, non-attachment sounds like non-involvement or non- or being unconcerned. And so, how can that? Happen? How can that possibly be giving? To be not concerned? So even within our, you know, within our. Uh, um, practice I think I, I I did a little bit of a double take when I read to give is not attachment. But um actually uh I'm thinking more and more about it, giving giving to others, you know, is um giving to others can either be out of attachment or uh, out of detachment or out. Um, so a giving out of attachment is holding to thoughts around the giving as, you know, I I'm giving this to you, but I hope you'll give me something back or I'm giving this to you because I want you to like me or I'm giving this to you because I need to feel needed. You know, so all those kind of reasons, which you know are probably one of most of us. That's not really giving. That's really taking and, and using using uh, the idea of giving to fulfill our own needs. But when we give from a detached place, we are giving because. Is the compassionate thing to do, the helpful thing to do, and that's the only reason. It's not based on any selfish need. So, and the most important gift we can give, I think, I can. I mean, I may be not thinking about some things, but I think the most important gift we can give is compassion. So, I just wanted to say a little bit about compassion. This. Um, I just want to say a little about the Compassion. Compassion um, is, uh, oh, hi, people. I I always forget to look over there and see who's here. (laughs) Uh, Good to see all of you. Compassion is defined, uh, this is uh, Joan Halifax's definition of it, and I think it's a good one. Compassion is defined as feeling genuine concern about the suffering of another and desiring to improve that, that person's welfare or that group of people's welfare, or that animal's welfare, whatever. Um, but well, one thing it isn't, one thing compassion isn't, is ramping ourselves up in the suffering of others, because we're pretty useless if we take on too if we take on too much the suffering of other people. We're pretty useless. I mean, you know how you feel when you're suffering. Are you really in the shape to help anybody else or give anybody else inspiration or help anyone else with their suffering? So um, wrapping ourselves too much up and the suffering of others is, uh, is, is a crippling thing. The word And the word for uh, experiencing the suffering of others or touching on the experiencing of others, I mean, on um, the suffering of others, or understanding the suffering of others because you've been there yourself. Uh, and our suffering is all pretty similar, I think, just in different levels of intensity. But um, that's empathy. And empathy is of course a good thing, and that's something we all need to need to have and to cultivate and to make every attempt we can to understand the suffering of others. But Joan Halifax talks about empathy in her book, The Standing on the Edge, which I think out journal taught a class in a few years ago. And it was Jose that reminded me of this, of this book recently. So I reviewed it. Um, empathy is an edge state because it can tip into harmful ways, harmful thinking. It can, it can tip into attachment uh, because, you know, some of us have latent tendencies towards, you know, power. so we can and self-importance and narcissism. We can use we can use uh, uh, empathy to um, uh, to hurt people. So we have to be really careful of, of this edge state. We need empathy, but we need to watch it. And, uh, um, and she calls it, we can overdose on empathy. But she said a wonderful thing I've stuck with me. She said, we can overdose on empathy, but we can never overdose on compassion, because compassion comes from a big place. Um, and it comes from detachment. So. Um, um one thing I guess I haven't mentioned yet about that we get really attached to also is our fixed ideas well kind of that's our identity our fixed ideas our past experiences we hold on to our past experiences like crazy and the judgments that come from them so I, I think the most perfect story I know about um about detachment and attachment is, uh, is and it's a story I think probably a lot of you know but I'm sure there's some that don't know it so I'm going to tell it the story about the two months Crossing the river. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Yeah. Two monks crossing the river. So these two monks were uh, traveling um, somewhere, and there was a a junior monk and a senior monk. And they got to this river that was pretty wild and had a big undertow. And uh, there was a a woman standing there, a beautiful young woman, in fact. And uh, she asked the monks if they'd help her get across. And so without much ado, the senior monk picked her up and in his arms and he just carried her over, carried her across the river and set her down on the other side. Um, and they went on their way. But the junior monk, you know, he tried to keep quiet, but he couldn't hold it in any longer. And about an hour or so later, he burst out with anger. And he said, I can't believe you carried that woman across the river. You know we have a vow that we don't. We don't uh, touch women, especially young and beautiful women. And you picked her up and carried her. I can't believe you did that. And the senior monk said, I put her down a long time ago. Why are you still carrying her? (laughs) Isn't that a great story? (laughs) I just love it. (laughs) It really captures the, um, you know, what we do. we hold on. Um, so Attachments, according, okay, uh, Suzuki Roshi and Zen Mind Beginners, there's a couple of chapters in there that are my favorite chapters, I think. Uh, I I shouldn't have favorites, but they are wonderful chapters about And one of them is called uh, Something Extra. It's called Something Extra, Uh, or Nothing Extra, maybe, um. But he talks about attachments being something extra or like stains or like traces of our thinking. I like stains because stains are hard to stains are hard to get out. And I sometimes see the stains of my own thinking when I'm sitting on a cushion. right effort is to get rid of the something extra. And so when we do things the way we usually do them, we add something extra to them. We add things like uh, like pride. Not, not the not the pride of holding your head up and taking your part in the world not that kind of pride, but the the more arrogant or uh, pride yeah. of thinking you're special you know um, we think of uh, desiring attention we think of uh, when we do things we want to get attention for it we want to impress or please others. Uh, or even things like just wanting to be perfect or wanting to do a really good job, even just wanting to do a good job. Although most of us do things that way, we want to do a good job, but even too much of that is attachment. Um, The the point is that we should do things without any attachment to outcome, without caring what the outcome is going to be. That's pretty idealistic. Most of us us don't usually do that. he says, when when you do you probably know this. When you do something, you should burn yourself completely, like a good bonfire, leaving no trace of yourself. This is detachment. When there's no trace of yourself, there's you know, this is really great. When there's no trace of yourself, there's no fear. And that's the that's the best part. Wow. When there's no attachment to outcome, there's no fear. Leaving, uh, and he also says that leaving a trace when we're, uh, which we are still attached to, is not the same as remembering. I mean, it's not that we should just do something and we're so transparent that we don't even remember it. He's not saying that at all. We still want to remember what we've done. We just, uh, we shouldn't forget it, but we just should be able to do it without an extra trace. And if we've done, left a trace, to leave a trace is. Uh, will remember the trace, and it will actually probably not multiply. So to leave a a trace is not the same as to remember something. Um, So all right, if we've done something uh, with a lot of attention to outcome, um, the memory will have a trace. A trace will be something like, well, I did that, but it was a failure. I don't think anybody even noticed that I did it. Um, but if we burn ourselves completely, there's a warm feeling around our memory of doing it. Then I have to think, well, if we did something and we did get a lot of attention for, maybe we even got famous for doing it. You know, there could be a warm feeling there, too. But it's not a very, the kind of warm feeling that's going to really last. Because when you've attached um, uh, attached to uh, that, that need to be uh, uh, Seen and to be recognized for what you've done, and maybe you did do something wonderful, and you did get famous. Now you're really afraid because you've got to keep doing it, and you're only as good as the last thing you did, right? So uh, that's how these traces can really multiply and become uh, real demons and uh, cause us a lot of suffering and a lot of fear. Now you're really afraid to go on doing something else because. You know, you won the election, but now, you, now you got to win the next election, or it's really horrible. We all know what that happens. How that happens? Uh, let's see. So, and I, oh, I wanted to mention. I think one a perfect example of doing uh, something with no trace is Suzuki Roshi's himself. His writing or his talks that were made into Zen Zen in Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, is a perfect example of someone who, who created something with no trace if Suzuki Roshi had cared about, uh, had thought about, well, giving these talks so that he could get a lot of people interested in Zen or so that he could become well-known, he wouldn't have written the way he did. I mean, because uh, I'm sure uh, the majority of people that read might read his book or, or consider reading his book would look at this and say, and this guy's crazy. He doesn't make <laughs> any sense at all. He's contradicting himself all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, so the people that aren't ready to hear the truth that's underneath all those words are not going to um, to buy it. They're just going to toss it aside, fortunately. But because he didn't get all wrapped up in in um, egotistical thinking, he told the truth, and so the people that could could were ready to grasp that truth made his book into something that's really, really changed. I I mean I think it's changed the face of Zen, certainly the Zen in the United States at least. And uh it had an enormous impact and and, and among you know Zen people. And he's very well known. So he got there because he didn't try to get there. Um I'm sure he wouldn't like the words he got there. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be way you would think at all. But um but it had a, a A a helpful effect uh, on the world because there was no trace of him in it. So um, when we can drop our detachment, our attachment. When we come detached, we can really see the real value of things. Um, We come close to that, say I think sometimes when we're sitting on our cushion. I imagine you've had the experience of standing up after sitting and. Uh, seeing everything looking kind of clear and, and radiant, maybe even and fresh and real, maybe just fleeting. But I think this is our little view we have of, of detachment. It's the time that we get close to it. And I wanted to say just a little bit about the importance of mindfulness in creating detachment mindfulness and and dealing with our selfish uh, self-centered thoughts i think i've told this before but um it was a long time ago so i hope i always really feel i feel um self-conscious about saying things i've said before but uh i wanted to say it because it was a meaningful thing in my life and i think it's um helpful i hope it's helpful um um It's an experience I had um, in uh, 2014, the year that my mother died. My mother was in the hospital, or she wasn't in the hospital. She was in the nursing home for a while, and I would go to Houston to visit her every couple of weeks. And um, I have a very, uh, I've had a very fraught relationship with a sister-in-law who's very difficult uh, for me, at least. and she's. Well, I I don't know. Uh, she's it's been difficult dealing with her, and she's done some things that I call rather mean. Uh, one of them is she wouldn't let me stay at her house during uh, when my mother when I was going there to Houston to visit uh, my mother. Um, so I had to stay in a motel. So I had you know I had a lot of difficulty with her. I had a lot of feelings of ill will and maybe even hatred and anger and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes I'd go visit my mother and she'd be. Uh, in fairly good shape and other times I'd go and she'd be pretty heavy heavy dementia and you know it's not it, it was not fun. And I'd spend the day there though when I was alone with her. Uh, and so there's this one day that uh, you know I was just particularly angry with my sister-in-law and I was dealing with these thoughts, you know, and I There wasn't anything else to do, so I was just kind of sitting there with these thoughts, and I wasn't meditating exactly, but I was very aware of what was going on in my head, and I was feeling very angry and feeling very, um, um, you know, just having a lot of ill will towards her, but I was watching it. I was seeing it quite a bit of the time, Um, and I'm still feeling it, though. I mean, I was feeling these emotions, but I was sort of standing outside part of the time and seeing it and there was a knock on the door and it was my sister-in-law and i did the strangest thing i gave my sister-in-law a hug mm-hmm. and it wasn't uh um, it wasn't a self-serving hug it was genuine i mean i really felt i don't know i felt glad to see her for the moment at least and i um you know she stayed for a while i don't remember what the visit was like but i guess it was cordial. but you know anyway and I thought afterwards, wow, wasn't that the strangest thing? Where on earth did that come from? You know, I'm so angry with her. And yet I've had this moment of, of, of this um, feeling, um, you know, feeling cordial um, and, and maybe even compassionate towards her. I don't know if it went that far, but at any rate, um, <laughs> at, at any rate, I, it, it, it showed me how that watching what's going on in our mind even though we're still it's still going on we might even be still generating or cultivating ill will and it's going on and we can't seem to stop it even though that's happening but we can see it and we might it takes the edge off it takes the power away from from those kind of thinking from that kind of thinking so i just I i thought it was very very revealing about how it just it just disempowers the your thinking, and that's about all I have to say on this very very huge subject. But I don't want to go on for hours, so uh, I, I would like to leave you with a little one line poem. Uh, this is from Leonard Cohen. I'm not going to explain it or anything because I can't. I'm not ever exactly sure what this means, but I feel like it has something to do with this subject. So I'll just leave it with you. It's, it's. he uh, said, um, only one thing made him happy. And now that it was gone, everything made him happy. So thank you so much for listening. May we all get more detached. Does anybody have any comments or questions?
0: I have a story about detachment. When when I was learning to be a therapist, I was asking people, well, how do you listen to people without getting caught up in their pain? Mm
1: -hmm. This
0: Mm -hmm. one person said, why don't you put yourself in a bubble? Mm -hmm. So I remember when I was a kid, there was a toothpaste called Ipana Toothpaste. and And it was a cartoon character named Bucky Beaver. (laughs) <laughs> and when he took, when he brushed his teeth with iPad toothpaste, there was like this plastic wall, this clear wall between him and his teeth and between him and the cavities or what, I don't know exactly, but anyway, it protected him. So I pretended there was this invisible, that was called an invisible protective shield. And so I put up the invisible protective shield. I guess that would be detachment. And I was talking to this child or and his mother, her mother, and all of a sudden, the, uh, the compassion that I felt, which I don't usually feel, it just went through the roof. Wow. And so that detachment, had I, I was shocked because when I detached myself from them, then I felt compassion towards them. Wow. Unfortunately, I didn't see it. Oh, this is a great tool. Why don't I do this more often? <laughs> I somehow just saw it as a one-time thing, but actually, you know, and that's what she had been talking about was a bubble. You yeah. know, it could be whatever you want. It mm-hmm. it's, it's
1: an invisible lucky beaver shield. Wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so oh, you didn't tip over into overdose and in empathy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh, your two hands went up at the same time. You're up in the front, Jack. What? So, can you say more about avoiding how to avoid the false kind of detachment that isn't really a spiritual attachment or? Inspiring
0: to you because I can think of many instances where my feelings of attachment have really been just sort of that
1: spiritual bypassing or uh, mass Spiritual bypassing. Sort Great of word, yeah. Yeah. the things that are really bothering you or the, mm-hmm. the situation as it really is. You can just mm-hmm. say, "Well, I'm, I'm detached. I'm sort of yeah. above that, or uh, a sufficient distance." It. Well, like everything, of course, the first thing is to see her doing that. Beyond that, I'm not I'm at a bit of a loss what to do, <laughs> but um to see her doing it, it is is, uh, is important and um, um yeah I guess just asking yourself what good is this doing to me? And, and,
0: I did hear I did hear somebody say once I thought this was like a recognition that we're all doing that at least from time to time is, is very helpful, that it's almost an inevitability. Yes, of course. <laughs> for some more than
1: others, but still. <laughs> yeah, you know, we all have a lot of karma and we we uh have habits, you know, we have habits of, of mind that we fall back on because it's comfortable and easy and I mean it's hard to. To, well, for instance, my example of being kind of an introvert and difficult to be with people or mm-hmm. spend time with people because it causes a lot of anxiety, that kind of thing, and so I avoid it and, and use that as an excuse. So I don't, I don't feel so much that way now. I yeah. still get a lot of anxiety over mixing with people, but I see mm-hmm. it's important, so I, I try to right. not do that anymore. But it's taken years, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think first thing you got to do is see what you're doing. Thank you. Oh, Brendan, you had your hand up. Mm, Yeah, thank you for your wonderful talk. Um, Such a deep topic. Such an important and deep topic.
0: And um, I was was thinking about what Dogen, the quote I think he used from Dogen, that giving is not attachment. And then what was coming to mind was um, expectations
1: around giving a gift, expectations about how the gift will be used. Oh, yeah. How I can (laughs) detach from that, because I often
0: find myself doing that, like, you know, giving this thing, okay, you better use it this yeah. way or, you know. Right.
1: yeah. I think that becomes a big problem, with big donors to the Zen centers and things like that. They want things to run away. They want. They think they should be run, you know, that leads to problems. I so, know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really, really hard to not have those kind, any of those ideas around giving, so. All we can do is chip away at them, you know.
0: Yeah. Thank you for your talk. I was wondering if you could say something about detaching from unresolved things like far in our past. Um that you talked about. because I just thinking about like, you know, a relationship that you know long in my past that didn't go well, like friendship, but it continues to come up and I think sometimes detaching may require dealing or resolving something like maybe not just letting go of it but like you know oh, maybe having a conversation with someone or
1: I was, yeah I was curious if you have any wisdom about like I think it's very important to um, to resolve unresolved um, things that have happened and I mean I'm not very good at it myself but uh, so, yeah, I, 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 that's a that's a really good point. Well, you want to drop, just drop it. That, that would be, right? I know I, my brother had a very bad relationship with my father. I did too, but I resolved that when I was in my 20s. And my brother never resolved. So when my father died, well, it was devastating for him. It's devastating. And I'm sure it's still reverberating with him, you know. So absolutely, yeah, thank you for that that looking at that viewpoint. So I don't know if I any of it in wisdom other than that <laughs> yes, it's important. it's important to, if possible. And sometimes maybe the person that you have a problem with has already died, but I think that you know you can still work with your own memory, your own thoughts about what's going on in your head over. Over what happened, you can resolve it with the, the person in your head, with that person in your head. Um, and I think that's an important thing that maybe has to be done. You, yeah, Pat, uh, when you talk about perseveration,
0: I can see being doing that about unresolved issues yeah. with dead people. Uh-huh. And and I, um, it's a weird practice. I've read about it and I've tried it, and it's immensely helpful. as to Write a letter to the deceased person. Really? Oh, and yeah. Tell, and you can explore your feelings and relationships so deeply. And it, it was very helpful
1: oh, to do that practice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, writing a letter to the deceased person. Well, thank you. Mayas, I ask? Okay. Oh, please. Uh, about unresolved things. The uh, you often don't get resolution and uh, I think you emphasize compassion and I think you can have compassion for your own difficulty Mm -hmm. that can't be resolved in the way that you want to because if we attach to resolution (laughs) we're still attached Mm -hmm. so bringing compassion to your own suffering around something that can't be fixed Mm -hmm. uh, you can fix yourself I mean in the sense of Bringing compassion to your own unresolved states can help resolve them, just not in the way that we normally think, like, I'm going to, you know, one-to-one be brave and honest and make this better. So compassion begins with ourselves. Thank you so much. Yes.